Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host and vice president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we look at how global issues play in Canadian elections with CJAI Advisory Council Chair, the Honourable John Manley, and CJAI Fellows Peter Donalo and Chris Waddell, and CJAI Program Director Ian Brody. Together with CJAI Advisory Council member Meredith Lilly, who cannot join us today, they constitute the advisory team for our new series that looks at issues in this election relating to global affairs. There is a special section on the CJAI website on the election. I encourage you to go there and read the papers. The first contribution from fellow Joe Ingram looks at the lessons of Afghanistan in terms of development, democracy, and security. We've also got a forthcoming piece arguing for a commission on migration written by fellow Andrew Griffiths. Others will follow. As to our panel today, the Honorable John Manley served for over a decade in the House of Commons in both opposition and government. In cabinet, he served as deputy prime minister, finance minister, foreign minister, and industry minister. He then did nearly a decade as chief executive officer of the Business Council of Canada. Peter Tonalo is vice chair of Hill Knowlton. He served as communications director to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and then as our consul general in Milan. Chris Waddell served as national editor of the Globe and Mail, CBC bureau chief and producer of election special for CBC for which he won Gemini's and then he went on to become director of the Carleton School of Journalism. Chris also has a PhD in history, which will be some help today. Ian Brody also has his PhD, is a professor at the University of Calgary and earlier served as chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and then at the Inter-American Development Bank. Welcome back to all of you. For listeners, Mr. Trudeau's election call Sunday morning a week ago was juxtaposed with images from Afghanistan as the Taliban retook the country seemingly without any opposition from the Afghan army and the democratically elected government. For Canadians, and especially for members of our armed forces, it was poignant and tragic. More than 40,000 Canadians served in Afghanistan, and 158 were killed between 2001 and 2014. Many others came home injured or suffered psychological wounds from the war. According to the Canadian Armed Forces, 109 veterans have taken their lives since 2011. Then there was more bad news from Haiti, having had their president assassinated the troubled islands suffered both earthquakes and tropical storms. And with most of our Haitian diaspora still having family there, it is another reminder that events abroad have deeply personal consequences for Canadians. Canadians Michael Spaver and Michael Koberg remain hostage in China. Donald Trump is no longer US president. And while we now have a roadmap to improve Canada-US relations, we still face problems with protectionism, pipelines, and the border remains closed to all but essential traffic. Then there is the pandemic and climate change as if we needed any more reminders that we no longer live in a quote, fireproof house far from inflammable materials as a Canadian Senator once put it. So let's begin. John, you campaigned door to door in your Ottawa constituency and for others across the country through many elections. Do voters care about foreign affairs? Uh, typically not, uh, Colin. Uh, not so much the, they don't care about it as it's rarely the issue that motivates a vote. It's rarely um, a ballot issue. 
Occasionally, something happens, though. Uh, so uh, in the, for example, in the 2015 election, the stark images of uh, the uh, Syrian child on a Turkish beach um, was certainly riveting for Canadians. And I think it played to a weakness that the uh, opposition parties were trying to exploit in Stephen Harper uh, claiming that he was uh, perhaps insensitive or callous or not uh, not uh, uh, not caring enough, and and that reinforced that image. In this election, it remains to be seen what the message uh, coming from Afghanistan is. Uh, the engagement there uh, has the fingerprints of both liberals and conservatives on it. It started, of course, uh, right after 9/11. Uh, when the Kretschian government was in office, continued under Paul Martin, expanded during Paul Martin's era, and then uh, expanded further, and then was terminated during the Harper government. So, you know, to have an issue that that uh, that drives votes, you have to have a division of some sort, and uh, it's hard to exactly see where that will come from. The inability of uh, Canada's government to get um, you know, interpreters and their families and others that supported us out of Afghanistan in a timely fashion could become an issue. Uh, and I'll leave it to others to say whether that's a foreign affairs issue or whether it's a competence in government issue. John, you also chaired uh, during the Harper government a, uh, a, a group which looked at uh, uh, Canada and Afghanistan as you look back at your report, and because I know you visited, what's what, what's your feelings? Well, I'm, it's 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 deeply saddening to see uh, the outcome. By the way, I got into that uh, independent panel thanks to Ian Brody, who uh, <laughs> helped twist my arm on it. But but you know, we we uh, first of all, the panel was given a certain mandate. We were we were dealing with um, the to some degree, the burden of past decisions. We were already there. Um, and secondly, you know, I would have said when I was foreign minister that the cornerstone of Canadian foreign policy was multilateralism. And the principal institution of multilateralism was uh, the United Nations. It's important to put our whole mission in Afghanistan in the context of a UN, a UN mandated mission that then became a military operation of NATO. NATO having passed um, an, an Article 9 resolution after 9-11. So it was one of those things where if Canada wasn't a participant in that, then exactly when would we ever be a participant? Now, things 20 years later, um, it's a sad outcome. And I can, I can give you some ideas why I think it turned out that way. And I don't believe that it had to turn out that way. But nevertheless, where we are is where we are. We'll maybe come back to Afghanistan a bit later. Chris, you and I have talked a lot about the shrinking of Canadian media coverage of global affairs, thin and thinning given budget constraints. Does the same hold true during elections as well? Um, a little bit, I think, Colin. I, I, I kind of break down media stories on international affairs during an election into about maybe four categories. Uh, the first of the, is the one that John mentioned, which is international events that occurred during a campaign 
that require a government to respond. And when a government responds, that can open the door for the opposition parties to say what they would do, either support, either agree with the government or do something that, that by implication, if not um, openly stated, would be better than what the government's doing. So um, Afghanistan and Haiti, we haven't heard much about Haiti at the moment, but those are both examples of that. And as John mentioned, the Syrian, um, Syrian refugee crisis in 2015 was, was an example of that. The second group I put, though, would be what I call the accountability stories, which are looking at uh, what the, the government of the day, in this case the Liberals, said they were going to do and whether they lived up to what they said they were going to do or not. That's obviously stories that are more focused on the government and there are, they tend to be domestic, but there are a few international ones. For instance, I'm thinking of the, the commitment the Liberals made to relocate uh, 300 Syrian uh, white helmets, the workers who actually uh, um, helped civilians caught in the Syrian civil war. And uh, a story the Globe and Mail did a couple of months ago, I think now, that suggested, in fact, very few of those people have been relocated to Canada at the moment. So those accountability pieces, looking at what government did and, uh, and, and, and whether they lived up to what they said they were going to do is another part. The third part, I would, the third ones I would suggest would be commission stories that something happens in the campaign. So a news organization may say, we'd like a story about this from somewhere else. And related to that are, are something that doesn't happen very much in the media, but probably should a lot more in election campaigns. And we've talked about this too, you, know, you and I have. Um, solution stories, stories that look at some of the problems that may be raised in a campaign in Canada and look at what other countries are doing to address those issues and perhaps compare how the parties in Canada uh, how their policies or their proposals may compare with what actually is being done on the ground in other places. And accountability, um, commission stories, and solutions are all stories that require time, require people, require fact-checking, and that's increasingly hard to do. Election campaigns take a lot of media resources normally, and uh, with fewer and fewer resources generally, there's fewer and fewer resources around to do those types of stories. So I fear much of our international coverage during the election campaign uh, will just be reacting to what international events are. Although there's lots of opportunity to do more if there was more resources or if people uh, decided to, to redeploy resources on different things. But that's always the resource question. I want to play off what you've just said, Chris, and, and I go to you, Peter and Ian, and I'll start with you, Peter, because both you and Ian have been in the war rooms uh, during campaigns. Global affairs does, from a war room perspective, does that come up very much and, and does it require sort of attention or do you sort of prepared for these things? Peter, why don't you start in terms of global affairs from during a campaign while you're in the war room? I mean, listen, I can't think of a single campaign in which, uh, with the exception of the 1988 campaign, which was largely about free trade with the U.S., in which uh, foreign affairs played a significant role in an election campaign. I'd argue, in fact, to John's point, excellent point about the Syrian refugee uh, crisis and the shocking images in 2015, that that became really salient because it was a, a counterpoint to, to really a wrongheaded move that the conservatives were, were, were trying with the, you know, the, 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 what was it, the cultural uh, snitch line and talking about kneecap bans and all that kind of stuff. It was a contrast, uh, a contrasting approach that was highlighted uh, by those images and by the various political responses to them. I actually think that in a sort of bizarre way, there is, has been a, uh, uh, there's been a, like a, we're, we're living in a period and it's been a decade of this, of essentially consensus, bipartisan foreign policy consensus in a broad sense uh, among uh, the major parties. And the last kind of major flare-up that I can think of where there were serious divisions was on the Iraq, uh, the invasion of Iraq, in which uh, the Canadian government led by Mr. Chrétien with John as a, you know, the, uh, the 
key minister, uh, opposed going in, and Stephen Harper, who was the leader of the conservatives then, uh, you know, going on American media to uh, denounce that decision. Now, that didn't become an election issue because that was all over and done with uh, by the time the next election rolled around. But um, but it was uh, that's the last significant flare up. And it's not as if there aren't you know, important issues to talk about this campaign. L listen, this election, at some point during this campaign, in a few days, uh, the uh, two Michaels will reach the thousand day uh, number of their incarceration in, uh, in China as the Globe and Mail counts down every day on their front page. Uh, yet both parties, both major parties, all three parties, I would argue, have been on the same page on how to ha on both on the arrest of of Meng here in Canada and on uh, and on uh, the the handling of the matter, the broad matter with the Chinese. Uh, I'd actually argue that to a certain extent, the the current Liberal government has been uh, fearful of taking a more bold step on it because they didn't want to be um, out of sync with the conservatives on this issue. I'd say Canada-U.S. relations is another one that, you know, we don't talk about. There's not going to be an issue in this campaign in which the parties are broadly aligned. There was broad alignment in terms of renegotiating uh, the NAFTA agreement uh, during the Trump years. But, you know, the U.S. today, this isn't your grandfather's USA. The U.S. is in uh, is going through some kind of transformation. We don't know how it's going to come out. We don't know whether Trump was an aberration or a, a kind of a harbinger of things to come. And Canada has yet to have a serious discussion of what our long-term uh, uh, strategy ought to be in terms of dealing with the U.S., which isn't going to disappear. They are, of course, our, our as, as the social credit leader Robert Thompson once said, they're our best friends, whether we like it or not. But, but that said, we have, uh, you know, we have a, um, we have to rethink if they're changing, and I fear they're changing in dramatic ways, if they're becoming more unstable, if the political, long-term political uh, gridlock, instability, polarization, and and honestly, even the potential for violence, uh, uh, you know, carry on there, that impacts us, and we can't presume to think that this is like we're dealing with uh, with uh, you know George H. W. Bush all the time. It's a new, it's a different country, and we need to take that into account. But my, but I'm telling you, I guarantee you, there will be no serious discussion of that during this campaign. Just as there will be no serious discussion of the Meng situation. We all know how that's going to end. We know how it's going to end. I mean, you guys might disagree with me, but. It's going to end with some kind of trade between Madame Meng and the two Michaels. It's going to end that way. Whether it needed to end that way after a thousand or two thousand days, or whether it should have never happened, as some of us have posited, <laughs> or whether it should have the trade should have happened earlier, is another matter. But we all know that that's how it's going to end. Except, what kind of humanity is it to, to drag it on for another year when it should have already ended that way? And Yet it's not going to be a political issue because no politician wants to stake that ground. So these issues that nobody wants to talk about, consensus is great in some ways. In other ways, it can be constipating for a country. I'll leave you with that pretty thought. All right. Well, um, Ian, I want you to talk a little bit about what it was like in War Room if global affairs comes up. And, and you may have been there during that election. We were talking the 2015 election. Um, but I also want you to sort of build on what Peter was saying that there's really no discernible differences between the parties, at least the two principal parties, liberals and conservatives on foreign affairs. 
Uh, well, I should just say, uh, uh, Colin, first of all, uh, I haven't worked on a federal campaign uh, since 2006. So, uh, so my experience here is a bit, uh, is a bit old. Uh, we did have to uh, dance around the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan issues in 2004 and 2006 when I was, when I was in the war room uh, for, for both of those campaigns. I want to say a little bit different than uh, what I think John and uh, and Peter said. Uh, if we think about global affairs in the sense that we now think about it in Canada, the trade stuff does matter in elections campaigns. Does it change votes? It does not because we manage around them. Uh, but for example, I don't see any of the uh, any of the parties promising to end supply management as a result of uh, you know in order to secure trade deals. Nor would any party ever do that. And uh, that that you know that's an issue. With, although it doesn't crop up, it's because it's because war rooms manage manage around things like that. And of course, uh, Peter's right. Uh, the immigration piece, which is increasingly a global affairs uh, uh, concern, uh, does crop up in election campaigns from time to time. Um, and then, of course, the Canada-U.S. stuff is in the background. Again, we sort of manage around those things so they don't become election issues. But that's a creation of the parties, as, as Peter points out, that that consensus is uh, is crafted by the parties, crafted by the parties deliberately. Um, I might say two things that I think do. One will be a story in this campaign. I expect at some point in the future. Um, you know, we have this campaign where there's sort of a pre-Labor Day phase, which is pretty quiet, and then I think a post-Labor Day phase, which will which will look different. And we're not into that post-Labor Day phase. Uh, just yet. I want to talk about two issues I do think are issues of this election campaign and were issues of the last election campaign. Uh, while the Meng Wanzhou uh, issue probably won't come up in this campaign, I do expect at some point there will be an argument about how Canada should approach the Beijing Winter Olympics. And that does matter because Canada, although for Summer Olympics, you know, Canada's position is an issue, Canada's leadership at the Winter Olympics is a substantial concern for our multilateral partners. And I've already heard, I expect the government's already heard from people who are expecting us to say something about, can we participate fully and normally in a sort of normal Winter Olympics in Beijing if Canadian citizens are being held um, uh, uh, without cause uh, by, the, by the Chinese authorities at that point? I think that, that, that will inevitably be a campaign issue, whether the parties want it to be or not. And then that may lead to a broader discussion about the future of our relationship with China, where I think the Liberal Party is divided between people who think it's business as usual, let's party like it's 2005, China will someday be a you know, constructive partner or participant in the global order, and a group of other Liberals who have been silent so far who are trying to think ahead to the changes that have obviously taken place in that. The Conservatives are further ahead in that debate internally, and therefore, when the Olympics come up, as they expect they will, uh, there'll be a division of opinion between the parties on that front. The other piece, and I think listeners may want to cast their mind to this, Chris is right, there's been not enough media uh, resource and not enough media creativity to make this a story. Canada will remain, I suspect, by the end of this campaign, again, the only Western democracy has not been roiled by extreme right-wing parties disrupting election campaigns or disrupting the results or you know, having an impact on election campaigns. So the liberal, you know, Americans have dealt with this differently than some of the continental European parties, but but it's uh, it's uh, partly, uh, I think, largely the result of statesmanship by Mr. Harper, by Mr. Scheer, and now by Mr. O'Toole. 
that although there's just as much capacity for uh, uh, a right-wing populist far-right party to emerge in Canada and to elect people to the House of Commons, I think this will be the third election in a row uh, where that's not a factor um, on election day in this country. And that itself is a remarkable non-event that should have some kind of journalistic coverage. And uh, our diplomatic uh, listeners who represent other countries will, will, I think, immediately recognize if they're from Western democratic countries in Europe, uh, that sharp distinction between Canadian, this Canadian election, again, the third one in a row, and their, their elections back home. Oh, and can I add a couple of quick points then to eat both Ian and Peter? Yeah, um, please do. Mr. So O'Toole in the Conservative Policy um, document recommends postponing the Beijing Olympics for a year until 2023, which is an, sort of interesting. I'm not sure that's going to happen at this point. There, it may be too far down the road, but but that's sort of interesting. For for those with a little bit of memory, um, he's also he's also saying a Conservative government would move the Canadian Embassy to Jerusalem and recognize Jerusalem as the capital of, of, of Israel. And for Peter's comments about previous elections, I, 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 I pretend to be a historian and go back to the Bullmark debates of 62-63, the Diefenbaker and, and Pearson. And also, I would say um, the elections of 72, 74, and 79, all of which were overshadowed by the first and second oil shocks uh, in a lot of different ways. But, Although those, but, were, those were primarily the economic impacts that the, yeah, that yes, that's right. Trudeau yeah. government had to deal with. And listen, you know, the greatest uh, uh, issues, some of the greatest issues we have to deal with are by definition global issues like climate change. Yep. For okay, sure. but so and and in fact solutions. That's that's the conundrum we're in. So many of these intractable problems require uh, a kind of uh, they require uh, uh, global efforts. They require efforts that include countries we don't particularly like or share values with, and, uh, and, and also require efforts that, that last longer than the four-year cycle. Of that's the right. Uh, but they're so as so they're they're in, they're clearly interwoven with domestic issues in that sense. Yeah. And I have to say one of the things that worries me about that, that discourse is the ease with which parties may pull out what I'd say is the, the equivalent of a diplomatic nuclear weapons in order to deal with them. Um, and I think we've seen a certain amount of uh, hesitation in being uh, very tough on China by uh, the Trudeau government for a very particular reason, because they feel it's gonna endanger the lives of the Michaels and may, or make their incarceration even worse than it already is. Um, to jump to, we're gonna boycott the Olympics is to make it uh, even more difficult to find a diplomatic solution to the Michael conundrum. To say no truck nor trade with China when so many of our supply chains are rely are reliant on on Chinese goods and services, including, ironically, for both Canada and the United States, the necessary minerals to to create the batteries required for electric vehicles, which both the U.S. and Canadian governments have have hung their hats on as being important contributions to climate change. You don't get electric vehicles except through China. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it's important, we've seen it come up in the last week, we're not going to recognize the Taliban. Okay, but, you know, recognition of a government, engagement with a government is not tantamount to agreeing with or liking or sharing the values of that government. And we were a very useful country through the Cold War 
because we could talk to everybody. The Diefenbaker government supplied wheat to China when nobody was talking to China. And I think it becomes uh, an important role for medium power to be able to keep those lines of communication open. And it, I bridle when I hear leaders talk about, well, you know, we won't recognize them or we won't do that or we'll cut them off like we matter. Um, when in fact, what we're doing is, is hurting our own interests and, and, and creating a weakness in our own position that makes it impossible for us to, to uh, have any impact. You know, Ian said earlier, it was a bit of a dig, so I won't, uh, but I won't take it too personally. When he said that, you know, there's a group of liberals who want to party like it's 2005 uh, uh, regarding China. I don't actually think that's entirely true or fair. I think, listen, nobody's under any illusions about China or what's happening with China, but um, it's sort of like what I was saying about the U.S., uh, we have to deal with it. We have to figure out how to deal with it. We have to figure out how to deal with it, ensuring that our that our interest, that our both our values and our national interests are um, are reflected in the way we handle it, and that um, you know that that we go into it with open eyes. Um, in terms of what our economic interests are as well, so you know. Um, I don't think it's a question of being uh, of, of wanting to turn back the clock. I think it's a question of, of you know, as John put it, you know, I'm paraphrasing, of sage and responsible uh, statesmanship. Um, and you know, these these come to mind both when it comes to dealing with both uh, China and uh, the U.S. If these are the new poles, uh, we obviously are aligned with the U.S. Uh, by geography, uh, economically. Uh, but the U.S. is moving in d weird directions that uh, I don't know that any of you anticipated uh, 20 years ago. And uh, it's not clear where it's going. And so, again, for these reasons, I think, you know, I hate to sound to echo Donald Trump, but we need to be Canada firsters in that sense. We need to do what's right for us, not just short term, but long term. And the, t the tendency to try and politicize issues, again, I look at the... Um, uh, Look at the Middle East, and I talked about uh, Harper on the Iraq War, but Harper did on Israel what uh, no politician had ever really done before in Canada. Uh, for, he, he basically politicized uh, um, uh, is the, the Middle East and the Israeli-Palestinian issue in particular. And... Uh, you know, weaponized it politically. I believe that was. A, I believe there was a there was a strong consensus about Israel uh, that we were friends of Israel, but sometimes friends have to also tell hard truths and be honest. And that was consistent from you know the Saint Pearson, Trudeau, um, Mulroney, Chrétien. And uh, there was a, I think there was a sense, probably a convergence of both ideology in the case of Mr. Harper, but also of uh, of electoral politics that saw an, uh, an opportunity to to um, politicize this or yeah to, to make it a partisan issue and I think the the consequence has not been good for uh, for our ability to help in that region uh, but I think that's one of the few issues that I, I have seen overtly politicized in a partisan way over in, a, in in foreign policy terms. Ian, I want to come back to your comment about. Uh, which I think is, is accurate, that there really hasn't been a right-wing uh, populist movement the way we've seen in the States or Europe. Is that in part because Maxime Bernier is, is, is viewed by most as kind of nutty, even if he did run second to Andrew Scheer in the leadership convention a few years ago? 
Well, we do have uh, two uh, smaller parties uh, running in this election campaign, both of them run by uh, former senior cabinet ministers, uh, right? Uh, Bernier was uh, industry minister and uh, and uh, foreign minister, and then uh, later a junior agriculture minister. And then, uh, of course, the Maverick Party run by uh, Mr. Harper's chief government whip and then House leader, uh, uh, Jay Hill. No, I mean, I think the uh, uh, we're still dealing with the Harper legacy here uh, of having uh, elevated uh, Canadian conservatism, and he did his effort to elevate international conservatism by pointing out that uh, immigration and recent immigrant groups uh, should be welcomed into the Conservative Party rather than viewed with suspicion. And he had a philosophical argument as well as a political argument about why that was not just necessary, but was in fact uh, good. And uh, I saw him make the same argument in private and sometimes in public to Conservative leaders um, in other parts of the world. Um, that's an example which has not been universally picked up everywhere else. But both Mr. Scheer and Mr. O'Toole have continued on, broadly speaking, I would say in the same, um, with the same uh, d d dominant view. I mean, there's differences in the way the music gets written out on the, on the, um, on the election campaign, but the basic idea is, is still the same. And uh, both Scheer and O'Toole have been careful not to give too much uh, space on the kind of populist right-wing side of the spectrum for another party to appear. So, um, you know, I don't think uh, Maxime is seen any differently here in Canada as uh, some of the uh, far-right leaders are seen by Western European uh, presses or by Western European, um, uh, uh, other Western European political actors. Um, sometimes it's because we have a first-past-the-post election system instead of proportional representation that, you know, makes it difficult for parties like that to, uh, to emerge with uh, seats in the House of Commons. But I don't think that's the whole story. Uh, because even UKIP and other uh, formations in Britain with first-past-the-post have had similar sorts of challenges. So, no, I think it's a, it's a statesmanship on the part of conservative leaders to try to keep the conservative coalition unified here rather than, rather than divide. You know, just follow up. Uh, we've got new debate rules, and it appears you know, right. right now it is, we're not going to see either the Maverick Party or Mr. Bernier's party, Mr. the leaders, that is, Jay Hill or... Bernier in the in the leaders debate, but we will see the Greens, the NDP, the Liberals, and Conservatives. Does that right? Do you think that's right? The way we've kind of managed this, uh, learning from last time, perhaps. I think compared to the last time we had a party disruption in Canada, which would have been the '93 election with the emergence of Reform and the Bloc Québécois, you know, they had not dramatically different debate rules then. I mean, in effect, the same. Uh, you know, at the highest level of same favorables, and yet they were able to make breakthroughs. I think that's easier today because of the open nature of uh, of the social media side of uh, of the news reporting and public affairs discussion in Canada, compared to '93 when there were still a handful of gatekeepers who could keep people out of media coverage. Um, uh, at that, you know, at, at that point, the '88 election would have been would have been the same. So I think actually the challenge of trying to um, manage the spread of party competition to new actors is quite a, is a lot more difficult today uh, than it was in, in, in 93. So that the, the, the uphill battle to try to keep the conservative coalition together is sharper today than it, than it ever has than it ever has been before. Um, we see that everywhere in the Western world, uh, almost universally in the Western world, except, except here in Canada. In 1993, the, both the Bloc and the Reform Party had the advantage of at least having members in Parliament. Uh, Deborah Gray, who had won the by-election in 88, and of course the, the 
uh, Jean Lapierre um, and, and uh, Lucien Bouchard who formed their own party. So they fit in under those rules. Um, we'll see whether, whether Mr. Bernier or, or the Maverick Party reached the 4% threshold. Uh, but but I think, I, I wonder whether one of the other issues um, that may differ, make it more difficult for some of these parties to actually do well is to a significant degree, it strikes me at least, that these parties tend to have largely a rural base. And the rural representation in parliament in Canada is not as significant or substantial as the right-wing populist rural representation in the United States, for instance, through the Senate and some of those sorts of things. And that may play a bit of a role as well. And the Electoral College. And I the mean, Electoral I, College too, yes, that's right. I think, yeah, you know, in 20 years, 30% of the, 60% uh, of the U.S. Senate will represent only 30% of the U.S. population. Right. That's a pretty scary uh, number. That doesn't, uh, and that's not like they change, they could change that constitutional, with a constitutional amendment very easily. I mean, listen, um, I think that, uh, there's another reason I think why we don't have, uh, uh, why we're not in a miasma of right-wing politics in Canada. And that is, uh, we, you know, we don't have the tradition of, of of hard right, extreme right politics that Europe has had over the last hundred plus years. And we also, that every European country has had over the last hundred plus years. And we don't have the uh, the uh, right wing media ecosystem in Canada. I was gonna say we don't have Rupert Murdoch. That they have in the US because, and there's not because we're better, but just because we haven't got the market size. Nobody can make money doing that. As Pierre Carl Pellido, who lost 40 million bucks trying to uh, start Sun, you know, running Sun Television. Well, it's just not- First of all, Peter, Trying to persuade the government to put Sun Television on mandatory cable so everyone would have to pay for it, but when he failed at that, he backed down on a couple others. Yeah, but I think the, the lack of Rupert Murdoch makes a and big difference. And it's because economy of scale. There's not enough money to be made in the U.S. Yeah. We we think it's all about ideology. It's actually all money. about money, and they need to radicalize uh, their um, their audience in order to keep uh, to keep getting uh, eyeballs. And that's what they do. And the impact on politics is cancerous. Let's which, not drives the other, which drives the, the left to do the right. same with, with MSNBC and- Except the, le the left is not the left, and I'm no lefty, but the left, the left wing media, what passes for it is not nearly as toxic or motivated by hate no. as the right. Let's not kid ourselves. Well, am I We're talking about US of, media? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm reminded of something David Jacobson, former American ambassador once said to me, listening to you, Peter, that was that in America, if politics go from A to Z, in Canada, you huddle around F to M. But, which leads me to another sort of question, and I put this to, to John Manley. Bruce Anderson once said to me that, you know, Canadians are sometimes described as sort of liberal, but he said, no, we're a prudent country, but we're also a progressive country. Do you think that's a pretty fair summing up of, of where we are? I think historically that's that's the case. I think that we've uh, we've seen um, in the past both liberal and conservative governments uh, making progress, making progressive decisions on many elements of social policy, um, and uh, and yet you know trying to steer a you know a relatively uh, in most cases prudent course on on other matters. We've been cautious. You know, it's it's the it's the the old joke about why did the Canadian cross the road to get to the middle, and it's 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 where I think uh, in the past most Canadians have been comfortable, and most Canadian political divisions have played out there. Mitchell Sharp commented on on that when asked one time about why 
there weren't sharp changes when government changed hands. And he said, because Canadians don't want, they want, they don't want sharp philosophical differences between parties. They want to have a choice so that when they get tired of one group of people or they get, they get lazy or corrupt or arrogant, they can give somebody else a chance for a while until they get lazy or corrupt and arrogant, and then they can go back to the first group. It's not about, it hasn't been about ideology. It's been about pretty middle of the road centrist policies for the most part. Not to say it can't change, not to say there haven't been the odd uh, curveball thrown in from time to time, but uh, I still think that's where largely Canadians live. I, I'm not sure that it isn't changing though, John. And uh, and I say this, you know, listen, I'm a, I'm a liberal, obviously, but this current government or the current incarnation is uh, plays a kind of um, ideological identity politics that uh, certainly uh, the Liberal Party that I belong to, uh, that I was very active in, didn't play. Uh, embraced much more the centrist role, whereas this government is uh, is kind of unapologetically center-left. In fact, the Prime Minister himself referred to the government a, couple, a few years ago as a center-left government. Uh, and uh, I think there's reasons for doing that that are political, to try and create more of a contrast with uh, their primary opponents on the right. Uh, and uh, and also to squeeze uh, the NDP vote or to to minimize the NDP vote by polarizing the choice. Uh, I think part of it also is is actually um, you know ideological on the part of the prime minister and many of his senior ministers, which is that's the way they approach the world. They're a, a different generation, uh, uh, and they have a much more uh, ideological view. Their heedlessness on the fiscal front, for example, is something I find uh, disconcerting. Uh, um, and I, uh, so I think that's, that's uh, I think there is more kind of ideological difference between the liberals and the conservatives now. Part of it is a branding exercise. I think part of it is, is sincere. Now, the problem is that it goes to, I think you're right, and you're paraphrasing Mitchell Sharp, that actually people do want to have a choice. They don't want to be in the U.S. now. You know, you're either a Republican or a Democrat. You'll put up with the most incompetent Democrat and the most the most vile um, and corrupt Republican uh, uh, in order to keep the other guy out of office, which is crazy. Quebec politics was like that for the longest time, where Federalists would put up with all sorts of uh, 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 corruption on the provincial level in order to keep the separatists out. And when you have that kind of political dynamic, it's not good for, for democracy. People want to have choices. People want to have, I think Mitchell Sharp was right, basically middle of the road interchangeable choices so they can throw the bums out when they've got tired of them. And uh, and as parties kind of adopt uh, tighter, harder, harder ideology, um, I think it's problematic. I think for the conservatives, I think they understood, and that was part of the rebranding from the Reform Party to the Alliance to the Conservative Party. They understood that by, you know, I remember in 93, you know, they were opposed to uh, Sikhs wearing turbans in the RCMP. They were opposed to, uh, they were they were far more, um, uh, they were anti-immigration in a lot of measures, or at least more uh, cool to immigration than the Conservatives had been. And they realized over time that they had to uh, move to the center and moderate in order to appeal to a broader cross-section of Canadians. Stephen Harper was a great example of that. He, he, 
in many ways reflected that moderation. Uh, and you know, um, Ian spoke about uh, Stephen Harper on on uh, immigration, for example. Absolutely right. Uh, so uh, the conservatives are in this conundrum where if they don't move to the center, they uh, they can't win elections, or if they don't move to the center on, on at least tonally and on a few key issues, they can't win national elections. Um, so, uh, but the liberals seem intent on polarizing. For I think for there's, a significant, there's a significant uh, percentage of the population that is kind of in the none of the above category yeah. at the moment. And, and we saw some of that in the last in 2019 election where really the, the, the vote choice question was which, do I, which of the leaders do I dislike least rather than which one I really want to enthusiastically vote for. And I think there's a risk that, um, that some of those people uh, who are the people that John talked about and Peter talked about as well, are, may just decide not to vote this time. And if they decide not to vote, that could make a very interesting and different result than perhaps people had contemplated. I want to pick up as my last question. I want to start with you, John, something that Peter said about our fiscal situation, because John, you served as finance minister. You were one of the lead ministers in that getting government right and putting our fiscal situation back in place in the 90s after we really were, I think, as you tell the story, the phone call away from IMF intervention. Are, are you at all concerned today that that prudent side of the Canadian psyche has somehow been lost in, in the last few months, partly because of COVID where there, we've taken appropriately interventionist, but is it too interventionist? I'll start with you, John, but I'm interested in what you have to say, Ian, and then I want you to talk, Chris, because you've covered uh, economic affairs much of your career as well. John? Uh, look, it, it, I, I think it's no longer uh, top of mind for Canadians. It's 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 a subterranean issue, and it will be until there's a real problem that that uh, emerges because of it. Um, I mean, when we took office in 1993, and I'm sure I, I, I'm hoping Peter would agree with me, to some degree, the ground had been prepared for the really um, difficult efforts that we had to engage in uh, that were you know in the 95 budget and, and following. And that ground had been prepared by um, years of advertising. Remember the remember the loony with a, a chunk of it taken out because the message was only two thirds of every tax dollar actually goes to you know goods and services that government provides. A third of it just goes to pay the interest on the debt. Um, there was a widely publicized series about uh, the events in in New Zealand uh, when the IMF did intervene. Um, the Ray government had brought in Ray days in Ontario. The last thing that, that, a, that a center left government would have wanted to do. There was, a, there was quite a high level of concern. And then the Wall Street Journal weighed in uh, with their you know, bankrupt Canada question mark headline. Of the Canadian Monterey pesos, Monterey. wasn't it, John? Sorry? The Canadian peso. The Canadian peso would honorary, would honorary member of the third world. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, right after the peso crisis in Mexico, so that that uh, you know there was a, there was a lot of political energy around doing what we had to do, and I think a broad a broad understanding that it was necessary. I think that has faded with time, and uh, I think the notion that is out there, and uh, you know, I I have to say I don't I don't share the belief of the new monetary theorists. Um, on this, I, I, the belief that that all of this spending is is harmless and painless 
is going to hold uh, water. The, the reality is that we've, we've blown a lot of uh, money out the door. It's largely been financed by the Bank of Canada. And I don't know, maybe the rules have changed, but it seems to me when you print more currency than your economy is growing, you're going to inflate prices. And we're seeing it in the numbers today. Uh, we're seeing it starting to emerge as an election campaign issue that, that prices for households are high. It's not no longer just a housing issue. It's, it's, it's a lot of, uh, of basic, the basic necessities of daily life. And uh, I, I tend to think that somebody's going to have to rein this back in. And they're not going to have the luxury of, um, you know, inheriting a situation as we did, where the public had been prepared, where growth was on the way, where interest rates were high and coming down. Um, so we were, we were good, but uh, we were also lucky. And sometimes you have to be good to be lucky. But I'm not sure that that luck is going to uh, be what helps the, a government that really has to deal with this in the future. Which it will. Chris, you know, you've covered this. Where do you come off? Um, I guess I think there's a lot of more economic uncertainty out there amongst the voters and the public than perhaps um, the media has reflected or perhaps it has been reflected in some of the debate discussion so far. And that's everything from on housing, where I think housing is a huge issue in urban areas, um, jobs. Um, I look at the people who haven't got their jobs back yet and all the, the question about where, what do those people want to do? How are we going to find the skills for the people that we need in the future? We don't have the jobs. Uh, we don't have the people at the moment to fill all those positions or, or nor the skills. I also look at things like, um, like climate change. And I thought the announcement in the United States, Southwest um, this past week about the Colorado River running out of water and the cutbacks in the Colorado River. Well, that's going to show up in the price of your um, uh, lettuce in the winter and all your vegetables and everything we get from California. So there's, there's big, there's, I think there's much more economic turmoil under the surface at the moment than uh, on a lot of different issues and perhaps is being, than practice being reflected. And I think that creates a potential for there to be, um, to be significant uh, unexpected things in an election. And I think it means that whoever forms the next government is going to have to deal with a lot of things that certainly people aren't talking about very much at the moment. On the inflation front, I know what John's saying. I also have a little bit of sympathy for the idea that the, the inflation comparisons at the moment are comparisons against an economy that wasn't in such great shape a year ago. So some of that is going to bleed out as we move over time. But on some of the other issues like housing and, 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 and some of those, um, that's going to be longer promises, uh, longer uh, longer issues. And from, from what I understand in Nova Scotia, that was at least a significant issue in the Halifax area where in that election, where um, lots of people from Upper Canada had been moving back to Halifax and are inflating real estate prices a lot. So some of those things I think are, are important issues for the campaign. And, and I think the challenges that we're going to be faced after the campaign, let alone the whole question of, which has been around for several years, um, people who send their kids to university and at the end of going to university, they can't find a job. And, and that's a big issue too. That's Ian. kind of a way away from it. Your question was Ian, but that's, uh, I mean, um, Colin, but, but, you know, they're all out there, I think, and causing some sort of uncertainty. Ian, what about you in the turn of the fiscal prudence, which was also, I think, characterized the Harper government? Well, uh, there was a partisan sorting on this over the course of the past 20 years. Uh, I think back to the mid 1990s, the polling was clear that there were people who called themselves liberals 
who were worried about uh, the state of government borrowing and uh, balancing the budget. There were also conservatives in that uh, in that in that group, and so there was a partisan dispute over, you know, was open to both parties to have arguments about uh, balancing the budget and dealing with public debt, and so on and so forth. Um, by the time I was working for Mr. Shear a year and a half ago, that was no longer the case. Uh, people who were worried about uh, the state of government spending or the level of government borrowing had all sorted themselves out into the conservative category. The only liberal who would identify themselves as liberal in public and who would say anything about this was Danolo. And so that's the that's the case. That's the case. That's the case. Hey, hey, hey. Manly may have too. Not fair. <laughs> Manly, I have heard on podcasts before describe himself as postpartisan. Uh, so, so, so I got, I got, he, he may be he may be part of the phenomenon I'm discussing. That's why uh, he's our chair. That's why he's our chair, uh, and, and we love him for it. Um, but uh, this summer, the polling numbers have started to shift again on that. Uh, not that people are worried about debt and deficit; they're starting to be concerned about it. Starting to show up amongst people from many parties, like, "Oh my God, we borrowed a trillion dollars, or we printed a trillion dollars, or whatever it was, uh, to get through COVID. How is that going to affect us in the future?" And certainly, cost of living is clear in the numbers that that is an issue that cuts across party uh, 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 par party identification and vote lineup in this election campaign. Um, I see the conservatives inking towards uh, discussing it. Uh, Mr. Trudeau's claim the other day that he doesn't concern himself with such things like monetary policy and economic issues. I think we'll see a, a, a recalibration of the liberal position on that after Labor Day, because if that takes hold, I don't think that's sustainable for a, a government seeking re-election. All right, Ian, I, you're going to start leading us off on, on my uh, penultimate question before I ask the traditional, what are you reading or streaming? And this is a number of foreign diplomats, ambassadors over the last week have said to me, What's your go-to source on the election? So I'm interested because we have an audience out there from the foreign diplomatic community who listen to this podcast and are interested, what should they be looking at in terms of their go-to source on the election? And I'll, I'll start with you, Ian. I think the interesting development in the last three or four years uh, is the extent to which the really high quality information about the Canadian election comes from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think both of those papers have somehow decided that they can take out, you know, what used to be Globe and Mail and maybe National Post subscribers uh, in the digital era. And so I think there's some really good reporting from, uh, I might add the Washington Post in that, I don't have a subscription to the Washington Post, but, uh, you know, they have people covering Canada as well. And I think what we have is this sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, increasingly high demand information consumers uh, consolidating their eyeballs in the big international news sources and the big international news sources responding to that. Uh, so my go-to first news source in the morning is the Wall Street Journal and then the Globe and Mail after that. Sorry, Chris. Okay. That's okay. Um, <laughs> well, Chris, why don't you pick up on that? What do you, what do you recommend as go-to sources? I think the question's wrong, Colin, and I don't think there's any, any longer any one source. I think in order to understand what's going on, you have to read a bunch of different places, see a bunch of different things, and be looking at different things all the time. And that can include the, the, organiz the, the international organizations uh, Ian's talking about. It also is a range of, of radio and television and, and uh, private and public uh, and, uh, and um, the major newspapers. It's also, frankly, some of the polling firms and some of the material they're putting out on there. And it's even extends to some of the commentaries and blogs that you see from people. So, so we're far past an era where there is one source for news or information. 
And the challenge that news organizations have faced in, in that is that uh, their audiences are disappearing or fracturing to varying degrees because people are going all over the place. So I, I would I would not say there's one. I'd say you've got to be sampling a bunch of different things and, and from different locations in the country because most federal elections are in fact a series of regional elections in Canada and that's probably still going to be the case here. All right, but let me press you, Chris. If you had to, what, what, what do you start with in the morning? Um, you know, I kind of look at little bits of everything. I don't really start consistently with one or another. All right, you're off the hook. Peter Donalo? Yeah, no, listen, I start, I'm sort of old-fashioned. I start with National News Watch, which is a good kind of menu of the main campaign stories that have happened overnight. And then I go from there to the main, uh, to the main, uh, media, main old, you know, mainstream media, lamestream media, as the Trumpists call it. Uh, but, you know, I think Chris has uh, nailed what the big problem is, which is the atomization of audience, you know. We used to have what I call the Ed Sullivan approach, which is that, you know, when we were kids, we would sit with our parents, our grandparents, watch the Ed Sullivan show from beginning to end, and there'd be an act in there for everybody. The Beatles for your teenage siblings, Topo Gigio for the kids, some fat opera singer for your mother, and everyone would gain something from it. We had a common source. Now nobody has a common source. We bask in the uh, in the echo chambers that we choose and have to that basically serve the purpose of having our own biases reinforced. That's true, frankly, center right and left. And uh, that's not a, there's no there's no more town square for a democracy. There's less and, and, less it's a, and, it's a and it's a generational yeah, organization too, Peter. So that what younger people, younger voters who maybe uh, first time voters or voters in their 20s and 30s are looking at is very different than what people in their 40s, 50s or 60s right. are looking at. No more really big shoe. No. All right. John Manley, where do you start in the morning? Uh, all of the above. But I, I, I still tend to start with the traditional newspapers. I get them online, the Globe and Mail and. And I get the post as part of the Ottawa Citizen because I'm I'm in Ottawa. I want to know what's going on locally, um, uh, and I you know listen to the local radio broadcasts. The, the I follow the national news and CTV and CBC, TVA, um, and I'm discontent with all of them. <laughs> so so I, I feel that uh, that it is important, as Chris was saying, to, to try to vary the sources. I'll, I'll use social media to follow uh, different sources. I subscribe to the New York Times. I think uh, Ian's point about some of the, you know, the Canada columns in the New York Times are actually very good. They're very insightful. They're written by good journalists based in Canada. And uh, uh, we used to have Canadian journalists based abroad. Now we need to read Canadian news from a foreign journalist based in Canada. But anyway... Uh, I, I try to I try to have an eclectic series of uh, of inputs, and I I try hard to read some that make me really mad and I disagree with, just so that I kind of have I, I'm not I'm not in my echo chamber all the time. All right, my last question, and I'll start with you, John Manley. What are you reading or streaming these days for diversion, not related to the election? So I'm 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 reading Doris Kern. Uh, Goodwin's uh, book on leadership, where she talks about uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, and uh, LBJ, whom she worked for. Uh, great historian, great historical writer. Uh, lots of us read Team of Rivals about Lincoln before, and it's uh, it, it's a great a great read. And I'm listening uh, on audiobook to uh, uh, Manchester's uh, first volume of the Churchill biography, The Last Lion. Um, 
which is also extremely well done. And well done as an audiobook, I have to say. Excellent. Chris Fidel? Um, okay, I'll go way, way out on a limb. I'm reading a book called Pegane and the Pilgrim, which is a book written by my mother in uh, 1956. My mother was a children's author, writing, writing primarily um, um, uh, fiction for those about 10 to 14. This is, a, um, this is a book about a young girl growing up in Stratford in the early 1950s. The book was published in 1956, who wanted to be an actress and was in Stratford when the festival theater was starting out, first in a tent, but uh, now, of course, it's the theater and, and takes over Stratford all year. And um, I'm reading it because one of the actresses at the, uh, in the festival company is turning the um, book into a play that they're actually debuting um, for on a couple of weekends, um, this coming weekend coming up, a couple of weekends in August in, in Stratford. So I'm going to see it. Unfortunately, my mother's no longer alive, although she'd be thrilled to, see, to know that that was happening. And, uh, and um, we'll have some fun. And I mostly want to check and see how true she's being. Uh, her name is Bridget Wilson. And I want to see how true she's being to the original book and in the adaptation she's turning out for, uh, for the stage. That's a wonderful story, Chris. Peter, what are you reading? Or so I'm reading, uh, I've just finished actually a book called East West Street, and it's by uh, Philippe Sands, who's one of the leading uh, international law experts. Fascinating story, interweaving his own family story with that mm -hmm. of the legal scholars uh, Lauterpacht and Lemkin, who um, Lauterpacht was the originator of the crimes against humanity idea, and Lemkin was the originator of the word and concept of genocide, and, right. and how their families all kind of coincided in Lviv, in, uh, which was part of, of Ukraine, part of Poland, occupied obviously by the, by the Germans and is now again part of Ukraine. And a fascinating story about past, present, about the, inter, the interconnection and the coincidences of the families, and uh, really a, a, story of, uh, a story of modern Europe and of, and of the birth of international human rights law. All right, thank you. Ian, what are you reading? Or streaming? Uh, I have to uh, say, uh, reading, uh, rereading, uh, went back to reread uh, Harry Jaffa's great uh, book, Crisis of the House Divided, which is an analysis of, uh, to go back to John's comments, uh, the Lincoln Douglas debates from the uh, Illinois Senate campaign before uh, Lincoln ran for uh, president, at which uh, uh, Lincoln ended uh, Douglas's you know, aspirations for being uh, president himself. It's it's a stellar piece of political science work. I had to read it as a graduate student that made a tremendous impression on me. It's also a superb discussion of uh, you know, 1850s issues of race and liberalism in the United States that I find refreshingly uh, current today, even though Jaff is no longer with us. And of course, uh, uh, Lincoln and Douglas are long since, long since gone. All right, thank you. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Global Exchange. We were joined today by the Honorable John Manley, Ian Brody, Peter Donalo, and Chris Waddell. We will be back to this group as the short election campaign draws to a close. Remember, you can find the CJAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, do give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institutes and all the scholarship of our fellows available on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Lantoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange. <laughs>